0: Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Today, I'll be joined by IP attorney Alex Truly to talk about IP considerations for charter schools. Back in May, Alex joined us to talk about the IP considerations that schools are facing as they utilize, implement, or in some cases, enhance their distance learning toolkits during the pandemic. Today, Alex is here to give us an update on how charter schools are doing so far in the new school year. Alex, welcome. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: So we can jump right in. I'm so curious to know now that we're in November, so school's been sort of in session for a good two months. What types of questions and issues have you seen come up around IP in distance learning and virtual classrooms now that the ball is really rolling with these formats?
1: Sure. It's a good question. I think last time we spoke, we were in the in the collective sense or in the midst <laughs> Figuring out exactly how to make the transition to a a virtual classroom and distance learning. And it was all happening quite rapidly. And a lot of the discussion focused around how a a school would protect its content and how it would uh, make that transition and what it might do in order to make sure its it's curriculum and anything that it put out online was done thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. And I think the Questions now have come less from necessarily the school, but more from the actual educators through the school. And the questions have been about what type of actual practices are permissible in the classroom.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Received a lot of questions around very granular type of things, such as, can I link to a New York Times article? Or should I provide a PDF of the article? Or do I need, I need to have students have accounts? Or what is fair use versus what's not? Uh, general questions around what is copyright and how does it affect what I'm doing day to day? Uh, I'm not necessarily teaching from a textbook in the traditional sense, or maybe I am depending on the hybrid model. Where do I find that middle ground? And just sort of trying to, to problem solve with the different schools, around the right way to do that. Uh, And it's often a situation in which we're figuring out as we go because these are highly circumstantial.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing any sort of what you would consider mistakes being commonly made by schools and how they're handling their own IP as well as not infringing on others? Like you mentioned the New York Times or a textbook.
1: Well, I I won't go so far as to say mistakes, uh, but I I, I think that there's a learning curve, right? And Mm -hmm. that's true for for just about everything to do with virtual classrooms and distance learning. Uh, So the the mistakes are not so much um, that someone knows something and is doing something wrong, but more along the lines of uh, people are sort of intuitively thinking about IP, and I mean that in the intellectual property in the very general sense, right? Not necessarily just what it is of law, but anything that has to do with ownership of materials or rights. Uh, And people tend to think about it a bit more specifically when they're in their virtual learning environment. So what's happening is that a lot of times teachers or schools are, are going at it ad hoc. Mm-hmm. And sort of figuring out as they go, and to some extent, that's okay uh, because you may not be able to contemplate different scenarios until they happen. Uh, and certainly, bandwidth is limited for the schools, and you know, arguably, there are significantly more important things to to be worrying about on a moment-to-moment basis than maybe a copyright license. But what I think could be improved is for there to be more consistent guidance given from the administrations of schools or from schools generally around what intellectual property is, how teachers and educators should think about it, and what type of best practices are really required. And that's because if there's consistency, there's less likely to be any manner of liability and there's less less likely to be confusion. So even some basic education around intellectual property would be I think, really useful for most teachers and probably a subject they're interested in. So it's not so much a mistake, but a, but a suggestion in terms of what I'd like to see schools start to do.
0: Yeah, okay. Are your questions more focused on the copyright of material that the schools or educators are putting together and putting out there, or their use of somebody else's material as a, like a supportive learning document?
1: I think it's both. More recently, it's been about the use of other materials, but the transition was first made It was about protecting a school's materials or curriculum. And the questions are, of course, related because there is an important consideration around where prior materials begin and where a school's prior materials end and where a school's intellectual property begins and education around what you actually can have intellectual property rights to right? Yeah. Uh, and so the, the example, I may have even given this on the last podcast, I don't specifically recall, but being the movie Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. and the issue being, what does a school actually own if they're teaching about World War Two? right? If they're showing Saving Private Ryan, for example, you don't own the facts of the war, right? And you don't own the idea of a war movie, or you don't own the idea of discussing it, but you may have some specific a program or something that you've come up around teaching World War II that involves Saber Private Ryan. So there's been a lot of questions around where intellectual property rights begin and end, uh, And then other examples to, to build upon the New York Times mention that I made, uh, if someone wants to teach about current events, you know, what is the difference between asking students to Google and find that article on their own versus... Downloading the article through a subscription and then distributing in mass to the school or the classroom. And where does that line between infringement and fair use begin and end? And there are a number of distinctions that sort of bleed into one another. And I think that I've been most useful where I'm able to just generally provide insight into what intellectual property is and how teachers should be thinking about it.
0: Yeah. Okay. And when you're talking about intellectual property, just because we live in New England, so it's very easy to cross state lines and people all over would listen, are those IP rules state or federal or a little bit of both?
1: Intellectual property is federal. All of the the acts are federal laws. There are certainly state laws as well. But when I'm speaking about intellectual property uh, and when most people speak about intellectual property, the vast majority of times we're, we're referencing federal law. Okay. And the state laws are built off of the federal laws as well.
0: Okay, okay.
1: You know, most specifically today, what I've, I've mentioned is copyright, right? And so copyright mm-hmm. uh, is the ownership of expression, right? Uh, and arguably the vast majority if not, almost all materials that are used in a classroom, there's some manner of copyright too. Uh, And so the idea is to understand how copyright law changes when you move from a physical environment, uh, right, with photocopies and hard textbooks into a a virtual environment where you are sharing content or you're providing access, right? So I think that's an, an important distinction to be made.
0: Sure. And is it very different how hard physical items or information is treated versus virtual information? Is there a great difference between the two or no? Yeah,
1: and you use the word information which is is helpful for me in explaining it because that's the point of discussion that I often have with, with teachers or administrators because you have to understand the difference between ownership of information and ownership of intellectual property, right? Mm-hmm. And you can own information, certainly. A lot of times you don't, like I said, you don't own the facts of World War II or history, but what you, you do own is the textbook that was written about it, right? And then you have to consider who owns the actual intellectual property to it. So, so when you're teaching in, that, in an actual classroom, you have textbooks and you have bought 30 copies of the, the textbook, and everyone has rights through that. Versus if someone is not working from a textbook, which still may be uh, right now because the textbooks have been distributed or um, it's a hybrid learning model, but more and more accessing materials through applications or email or whatever um, the technology may be is providing access to it versus uploading it, right? So, what, what, what is the distinction between? Someone accessing a free article to the New York Times versus me individually as a teacher paying for one subscription, downloading that article, or rather printing it as a PDF, right? And then sending it out to 200 students, right? Yeah, That's the difference between access and distribution, right? Yeah. And either of those things uh, can potentially lead to some manner of infringement. Uh, if, if you're not aware of, of the nuances of how copyright law is considered, and then as a next step, if you are not aware of fair use, mm-hmm. uh, and there is this sort of prevailing belief that I'm an educator, I am doing good, important work, which is absolutely true, uh, but What's not true is that because of that fact that you are not subject to copyright law and that anything you do is fair use. There's a number of other factors that, that go into it. So I'm usually the bearer of bad news.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you ever have anybody um, convey sort of the thought that, well, how is anyone going to know? It's just me in my little town and my little classroom. How would anyone know if I distributed that New York Times article?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's, again, related to sort of risk management and mm-hmm. what uh, what schools are comfortable with. I, I certainly, I'm not going to ever advise that someone commit infringement knowingly. Uh, but I, I can do is educate schools and, and teachers and educators around what the line for infringement is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you are a small school and you are distributing only, you know, 10 copies of, of an article or something that's copyrighted, uh, you know, that, that's probably not going to become an issue. And even if it did, it, it's probably de minimis, right, to use the, the fancy legal term, mm-hmm. uh, not going to run into too much of an issue. Uh, but if you're, you're a bigger school, right, you're a bigger district and you decide that you're going to distribute something across multiple schools or multiple classrooms, or you have a, a curriculum that requires that, then it, it becomes a much different situation. Uh, and certainly the, the truth that I think we all know around accessing materials online is that there's much more of a record of it, right? right? So uh, you, you hand out a, a photocopy and then you know some people hold on to it, some people get rid of it. But if, if I've sent an email to a number of people, that, that email exists, right? It's, it's out there. So it, it's probably not the best way to think about it. Who's going to know? Who's going to find out? Right. Uh, or, you know, try to be too clever. I, I think those, those are the type of mindsets that lawyers try to move people away from.
0: Yeah, well, and I would also think in the age of social media, if your students are learning something and one of them decides, oh, hey, get this, and they can post about it. Um, so it has the ability, not only is there more of a footprint with electronic information being accessed, but there's also more likelihood of a spread. That you right. can't control. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and, and it's not to say that people should be a, a, afraid to share materials. I, I, I don't think that's the case. It's just the idea of being proactive about it in and thinking through what materials you're using and how you're sharing them and who has rights to them. And I think that's where either the administration or educators can really benefit from just understanding a little bit more about intellectual property, specifically copyright by having some, some policies in place even, know what boundaries they should exist within in order to most likely not run foul of copyright law, right?
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how should a school or an educator think about IP in a virtual classroom?
1: I think probably two different ways. I'll try to be pithy with it is protecting intellectual property versus mitigating risk, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. thing with, like I mentioned earlier, would be making sure that you identify what intellectual property you as an educator or the school really own uh, and being thoughtful about how you use that and what steps you're taking to make sure it's protected. Uh, but mostly what I focused on today and what most of my more recent questions that I've received have been about is really about mitigating risk uh, and now I haven't seen examples of publishers or copyright owners really going after schools. Uh, it doesn't really make you the good guy to go after schools, particularly in this learning environment. Uh, but copyright rights are, are nonetheless property rights. Uh, and I, I suspect that if there are more and more examples and they're more settling in with the use of materials on a greater scale, copyright materials, that you, you probably will see this become an issue more frequently. Uh, and so in that sense, mitigating risk. And I think that that's the way a lawyer would say it, but really what, what I would frame it to to a client and the right way to think about it is to make sure that people are aware of what type of materials are okay to use, uh, to what degree uh, and what manner, uh, and to have some, some policies in place that spell that out. Uh, and then the other thing I, I really would want to encourage teachers and administration to think about is just being proactive versus reactive. Uh, and a number of times and you know that the proactive versus reactive distinction is one that I always find a way to, to weave in. But that's that's because I, I believe it's really important. And certainly what I mean by that is that I don't really want to see an ad hoc approach to well I, I I'm just going to use this and we'll see what happens. Uh, I want people to be thoughtful and and deliberate about it uh, and thus to be proactive in, in thinking about what materials are being shared, who owns them, what steps do I need to take to make sure that I have followed the rules or that I, I have uh, not at, at least blatantly violated them.
0: Okay. Are there, you've covered a lot of ground already, are there any other things that you recommend a school consider in securing intellectual property or... Or just protecting itself. It's you know. It sounds like you've talked about that. Be proactive. Put solid policies in place. Educate the educators.
1: Right. I, I think the the main thing that I would recommend is that does not get lost in the shuffle. Right. Uh, I think it's something that should be on a school's checklist, uh, and it's something that, with a, a bit of focus, uh, can really provide some some benefit to the school. Uh, and may even allow the school to be more creative in terms of what materials they can share when or what technology they may, may need to access uh, and by thinking about intellectual property up front uh, from the, the top down from the administration to the individual teachers you, know, you can get ahead of those things and really create a better experience and i should say i don't i don't think it should only be top down you know to i guess correct myself. It's also important. And a lot of the best questions that, that I've received have been from teachers who are sending the questions up to the administration, to the, you know, the principals or the heads of school saying, you know, here's what I want to do. Uh, is this possible? Right. And uh, I'm not quite sure that this is okay. Uh, it feels like it might be, but there's something that's saying no. And, and those are a lot of the really, helpful factual scenarios that I'm able to address with some specificity. And I think once teachers know that, yes, I can do this. No, I can't do that. Uh, I can do uh, this to a certain degree. Then they can start to plan their lessons and create experiences in the distance learning classroom that are more engaging and are more creative. So that, that, that's my, that's my aspiration for the schools and and hopefully I can play a role there by just being that educator.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Alex, this was so helpful. Thank you. Your guidance I think is so valuable and so well said. Um, so thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you. I, I really uh, enjoy being here always. And uh, certainly I'm happy to answer any questions should any listeners have them. And uh, thank you for your time, Hannah.
0: All right, great. Thank you. Be well. For more information about intellectual property issues for schools or about Alex Truly, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com. You can also find information by visiting us on social media and searching Barton Gilman. Thanks for joining us today.
1: The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information.
0: Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, The Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.